I believe in America. Welcome back to the Essential Films Podcast, a podcast devoted to the discussion of the greatest movies ever made, or the essential films. From the beginning of cinema history to present day, these films are crucial to the education of anyone who loves the art of filmmaking. I am joined by my co-host, Mark. How are you doing this week? What's going on, man? Glad to be back. I'm glad to have you back. Uh, so this is our this is our second episode in a row. This is the third episode in the series, um, and uh, we're, we're, we're going to hopefully, you know, this is a lot more uh, regular than the the uh, the gap between episode one and two. The gap between episode two and three much shorter. So this is going to be a regular series. I I, I hope that you are subscribed and you're tuned in. And uh, and if you're discovering us for the first time, welcome. Uh, we're this podcast is devoted again to to discussing all the greatest classic films of all time. Last week we talked about Citizen Kane, and it was a great discussion. Uh, you should go back and listen to that. But this week we're going to discuss. Possibly, actually not possibly, I would say definitively the greatest gangster movie ever made. So now I know that your favorite is Scarface, uh, but I think if you poll, you know, most movie critics, most movie fans, they would say the greatest film, uh, the greatest gangster film of all time is uh, is, is The Godfather. It, it is the Citizen Kane of, of God uh, of gangster well, absolutely. films. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. I mean, it, it probably, well, I was going to say because it has the most quotable lines, but so does Scarface. So, I mean, but like, it's just – it's more about how ingrained now The Godfather is in our popular culture. Like it's hard to imagine, you know, just culture period without The Godfather around. You know, it's just – that's how quintessential it is to basically our existence. Yeah, I mean it, it – it, it, I think it – I mean it basically wrote the book uh, – I mean it, it was based on a book. It wrote the book on the film language of gangster movie. I know we had plenty of – Gangster movies uh, in the 30s and 40s, you know, with uh, James Cagney and Edward G. Robinson, and they were great movies, but they were they were not The Godfather, and and, and I don't mean that in terms of quality, although I that that too, but in terms of just how the story was laid out, The Godfather is an epic film. It, it is a it is a very wide, uh, a very sprawling story between like over generations, especially in the second one. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's what I like about – I mean we're, we're talking about just the first Godfather in, yes. on this episode. But what I like about just not, at least the first two films – I mean we can talk about three another day if we ever get to talk about it here. But You know, um, I, I think – I think for, first of all, yeah, like you said, we're only going to talk about part one because I think if we did part one and two, this podcast would be five hours long. Uh, but I think you know, while part three is not a great movie – I think at some point in the future we should review it because it, it it's an interesting film and I think you kind of need to watch it to complete the story. I mean, I don't know about you need to watch it to complete it, but it it does kind of wrap up the story in a nice little bow. I'll agree with that. But I mean, the, the original point I was going to make though was that what's about these two films. So the first one is more of like a straightforward narrative. But the second one is directed more as a, as an art film, as a more like a European stuff where you have the flashbacks and you kind of have the two parallel stories, which is why the second one is so great and innovative. But this first one, at least, you know, even though it's a straightforward narrative, you know, it kind of gets the ball rolling on the whole story and you get to know these characters 
And I mean, I was gonna say you get to love them, but I mean, it, it's that that's what I like about it too, because of a whole shades of great thing. You love these characters, but at the same time, you're repulsed at what they kind of stand for. Uh, but before we get to that, I do want to kind of touch on something that you just talked about, um, and that is how, kind of the difference between the first two films. So again, we're not going to get too deep into Godfather Two, but there's kind of a reason that Godfather One and Godfather Two have a have a little bit of a different flavor. So Godfather One was kind of made on a very small budget. Uh, it, 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 in those in 1972 standards, it was only made for like two or three million dollars uh, because uh, uh, Francis Ford Coppola was kind of an unproven director, uh, and even though they had you know purchased the rights to this this very famous novel, um, they weren't you know originally they were gonna you know make it. I'm not sure if you heard, if you if you heard this during the documentaries or in your prep. It was gonna be. Updated to the 1970s, and there were going to oh, be hippies in God, it. Oh my God, bro! Yeah, the, as soon as he threw the word hippies in, yeah. I just started cracking up. It was going to be in St. Louis instead and like, of New York. That, that's such a quintessential, dude. That is such like a quintessential like studio idea. You know, they it seems like you know they're always like missing the point about like how, what these you know different films should be about. They have their own like ideas that they think are going to make money, but of course they have data to back up some of their goofy ideas. But at the same time, it, it just comes down. To of them just missing the essence, just missing the point of the movie that they're trying to plan out. Exactly. And just a slight correction, though. You said that uh, they did budget the film for like two, two and a half million. I think he ended up saying that they spent six and a half million in total. Yeah, he did, he did go over budget because he wanted to make a period film, like basically, right? right? So, so they did go over budget because he wanted to make this period movie, and uh, and obviously the, the, it was a very, very major success. It won Academy Awards, and it it was a big, huge blockbuster, one of the biggest movies of all time at the time. So when he got the go ahead to do part two. The reason it's so different is because he just wanted, he before he kind of made a more commercial movie, right? Whereas in the second movie, he he really made that he really went full on kind of art film. Uh, right. I mean, well, since the first one was so successful, they let him do whatever he wanted. Yeah, they let him two. do whatever he wanted exactly. So that's kind of the that's why there's kind of a difference between the two. But um, I think we're both agreed that it, it's it's. One of, if not the greatest gangster film of all time. So before, so let, let's let's kind of dive into the discussion here. But before we do, uh, I'm gonna go go ahead and kind of just kind of give you a little bit of a taste of, of how important this film is as far as the uh, as far as the um, you know the the general uh, accolades it has received over time and some of the stats. So The Godfather was uh, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It's released in 1972. Um, it stars Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, James Caan, Richard Castellano, Robert Duvall, and Sterling, Hay- and Sterling Hayden, and uh, Diane Keaton. The screenplay was by uh, Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola, based on the novel by Mario P- uh, Puzo. Uh, and the cinematography was done by the great, fantastic Gordon Willis. Uh, we'll get to his stuff in a little bit. Uh, it won. It was nominated for, I think, ten different Academy Awards. It won three for Best Actor in the Lead Role, Best Picture, and uh, Best Writing uh, for Adapted Screenplay. And Best Actor, that went to Marlon Brando. Uh, it, it's pretty much topped many American Film Institute lists. It was uh, number three on the 100 movies of all time, number 11 on 100 thrills. Uh, uh, the movie quotes that made it... Um, was the number two quote of all time. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Uh, 100 years of film scores, 100 years uh, of, of movies, the second edition, number two. And actually, in the in their number uh, top ten gangster films, it was the number one gangster film. So there you go. A- AFI thinks it's the number one gangster film of all time. Um, which, you know, you can't really argue with AFI sometimes. Um, but it, it's... So with this episode, we're covering number one, two, and three on the uh... – 
AFI list, I guess, right? I guess so. This, yeah, because this would be the, because I believe AFI, number one is Citizen Kane, number two, I think the first time they did it, number two was uh, uh, was Casablanca, number three is Godfather, and the second time they did it, number two, the, yeah, they, number they two is Godfather, them. number three is Casablanca, right? Uh, we're not going to do the whole AFI list, by the way, we're going to switch it around, and we're going to uh, introduce a new, um, a new, uh, copyrighted machine at the very end of this episode that's going to choose our next movie all right <laughs> but but i wanted to get those the those three in in our first three but it, it is one of the greatest films of all time um and as we noted before it almost wasn't it almost was something completely different i mean can you believe that these the studio was like yeah let's update it to the 1970s make it in st louis and put hippies in it St. Louis, hippies, contemporary, it's just, uh, it's hard to imagine just The Godfather having any one of those elements. <laughs> um, now, what's interesting is Coppola wasn't the original first choice. You know who the first choice to direct the film was? Well, the first, okay, the first choice. Well, I know they asked Kazan, he said no. They asked uh, Arthur Penn, he said no. But I know they asked a couple other people, I can't remember who. Well, the, but... I don't know, well, maybe maybe it's not the first choice. I don't remember who the... Uh, which order is correct, but uh, who they asked. Maybe they asked Kazan first or whatever, but th- 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 those are correct. Coppola was not on the, the one of the first choices. But uh, Robert Evans, who, by the way, if you don't know who Robert Evans is, um, <laughs> I would suggest buying the book, or you can listen to it, actually, buying the audio book, uh, The Kid Stays in the Picture, which is Robert Evans' uh, autobiography, narrated by by the man himself. And he's basically the guy who ran Paramount in the late 60s and early 70s. And he is insane. He's absolutely insane, and it's amazing to hear these stories. But he was the head of the studio whenever they were making The Godfather. And whenever they got the rights to the book, um, he wanted to make a very ethnic Italian movie. And one of the first choices was Sergio Leone of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, And Leone turned it down because he wanted to make... Once Upon a Time in America, which it took him like 15 years to make. Mm, very nice, <laughs> right? Uh, so he turned it down and then made that movie like you know 15, 20 years later. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> funny. But he did make it. Um, but uh, eventually it did go to uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who at the time uh, was you know just kept taking his uh, American Zotrope production company off the ground, and they were basically broke. <laughs> um, and... His friend and also partner in his American Zotrope, George Lucas, uh, our boy George Lucas from Star Wars, uh, basically told him, look, we're broke. Just take the money and do the movie and then use the money after you after the movie's successful to do whatever you want. Because P- Coppola apparently was kind of hemming and hawing about taking the movie. Well, yeah, because uh, if, if I recall one of the documentaries, I think uh, Walter Murch was talking about this. He said that, you know, the type of film that, like, you know, Hollywood was trying to get him to make was exactly why he filmed Zoetrope in the first place because he wanted to make these like smaller pictures like more like European art films but yet you know Hollywood's coming to him with like and this is his, this is exactly what he said like with their Hollywoodiest that's <laughs> that's what he said their Hollywoodiest idea you know and so he was kind of this is the exact thing he was trying to escape and now he's he's getting pulled back in as like he, I guess he would use that line in Godfather Three without Pacino. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. So that's the story on that. Yeah. So as we mentioned, you know, he eventually took on the job, and then he's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna make it uh, a period movie." And and basically, 
Uh, he worked very close with, with Mario Puzo. He wanted to make it be very true to the novel. Uh, they did take out some stuff in the novel. Apparently, there's this whole storyline about a woman with uh, abnormal genitalia that they took out. I don't. I've never read the book. Have you ever? read I've the never book? read the book. I, I might pick up the book now because I'm, I'm intrigued about that part. I can't really find anything about that anywhere. <laughs> I know, but they keep talking about it in the documentary, and I'm just like, huh. And there's actually little bits of it too. Apparently. Uh, you know, and this is a PG show, so I'm going to try and say this uh, very delicately. There's apparently something about how uh, Sonny's manhood is very large, and you can actually that's a, a subtle joke in the yeah. <laughs> there's I a like very that. subtle joke about it in the movie, like <laughs> um, it, 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 where um, Sonny's wife is um, kind of you know using her hands to show how big something is and. And you never actually never I never understood that until I found out later what that what was going on. I was like, why is that there? What is she talking about? <laughs> uh, but before we get to this, uh, actually, I did want to ask you, and I forgot to ask you, how did you first experience this film? Okay, my experience is kind of weird because mine was completely backwards. Okay, um, you watched Godfather uh, Three first. Oh no 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 no! <laughs> not that kind of backwards. Um, so. I actually kind of got introduced to this whole genre through Scarface, which right now is still my absolute favorite movie. I, uh, my mother actually picked up the uh, the 2003 20th anniversary DVD, and that's how I saw that movie for the first time. And I remember just after that first one, just being so mesmerized by not only this film, because it is a classic film, and, and I'll defend this movie till the day I die, why it's my favorite, but... I kind of got intrigued by the whole just gangster genre after that. So what I do, I dug up The Godfather. I dug up, you know, Goodfellas. I dug up Casino, The Untouchables. I even went back to, and that's when that's when it really started to get on my gangster kick. I didn't really get to discover like the like the pre code films, you know, like Little Caesar, or the original Scarface, until I was more into my college years. But like this is still me in high school. I'm watching The Untouchables. I'm watching. Casino, Goodfellas, you know, all those films. And it all really started with Scarface. And then I, The Godfather was the next one on my list because, you know, after, you know, doing some digging, I saw that's like the gangster film. So I saw that one and I saw part two, then I saw part three. And then I kind of just got the ball rolling on that whole genre. Oh, that's interesting. So so you're, so it was your mother that kind of introduced you to the gangster genre. And then through that, you, you watched The Godfather. All right, because my grandfather used to love these films, you know, like French Connection, you know, he, The Godfather. He, he used to love these types of films. And, you know, of course, my mother, she kind of got the ball rolling for me with these films by introducing me to Scarface. Hmm. It's interesting. And we didn't plan this ahead of time, but it's funny because it was my mother who introduced me to The Godfather. Like, so. Because, oh, really? Yeah, because it, it's actually her favorite movie. And I remember uh-huh. um, one year. Uh, for Christmas or Mother's Day or her birthday, I don't know. It's one of those holidays, uh, a gift-giving holiday. Uh, I'd asked her what she wanted for her birthday. She's like, "Oh, you know, I haven't seen The Godfather last time. Maybe you could buy me the, uh, maybe, maybe you know, someone can buy me the videotape." So I, yeah, I bought her the the you know, this is the VHS. So it was like in the '90s at some point that I bought her this, and it was like the double VHS because I mean it's a three-hour movie, so they can't put they can't fit the whole movie in one VHS. <laughs> so it was a double VHS. Um, I bought the WVHS of The Godfather. And, uh, you know, I'd never seen it. And it, so one day she decides, you know, she's like, oh, let's, I'm going to watch the movie. So I, I sat down and watched it with her. 
I think I missed like the first couple minutes, but then I, I said, I was like, hey, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm watching the movie you gave me. So I went down and watched it. And, and I think this is the first movie. If you take out, you know, the classic animated Disney films and something like The Wizard of Oz and like Star Wars, this is the first movie I ever, like, first movie not geared towards children uh, that I watched that was released before I was born. You know what I mean? Wow. Like yeah. in, in the, like this first quote unquote old movie. You know, uh, even though 1972, you know, in the 1990s wasn't that long ago. It was only 20 years before then, right? Uh, but it, but to me, like, oh, that was so old. That was way before I was born, right? So it was the first old movie that I had seen, and I'm watching it. As, and as I watch it, and as and I just sat there, you know, at, like you like like you with Scarface, just mesmerized. Not only at this the the storytelling, but I was also kind of shocked that. Because, you know, I had this preconception that old-timey movies are like, you know, the, the old-timey movies from the 70s are going to not be very violent or have lots of swear words or anything like that. And I was shocked at how violent the film was and then how good the film was. And and this is like the first time I ever realized, oh, like acting is a thing. Like when there are like excellent actors in the world. Because, I mean, what was I watching back then that like I care I you know I was watching like kids movies and yeah. you know and I'm not going to put down people in kids movies but you know they they're 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 not you don't watch like you know uh like a Disney movie from the 90s I can't think of one right off the top of my head and think wow that's excellent acting you know like you don't watch uh, Angels in the Outfield right and think how great you know Joseph Gordon-Levitt was you know <laughs> you just think like oh it's a movie uh <laughs> but it was this movie. I'm like, when I noticed Marlon Brando, when I noticed my, uh, I almost called Michael Pacino, Al Pacino, uh, and I'm like, oh, this is what acting is. This is, this is like real. This I understand why people give a give a damn about acting. This is amazing. Um, and yeah, that's how how I first kind of came out to The Godfather. And then after that, I think I've probably after, since that point. I've probably watched The Godfather at least once a year, and most years probably twice. Oh, I'm sure for me, like since uh, since like oh five, I would first. Like, I don't remember the, the year I saw Godfather first time, but since I would say at least oh five, I'd seen it like once a year, definitely. Yeah, it's it's a definitely it's a one, once a year kind of movie for me, uh, at the very least once a year. Uh, and same with Godfather two, Godfather three, uh, not so much. <laughs> I've maybe seen it like. Once every five or six years. Last time I saw it, I'll tell you exactly. Last time I saw it legit was 2012. Because actually, I had just bought the uh, the Coppola restoration set. Uh, so, uh, Last time I saw it actually was like a couple months ago, actually. Because I was watching the, uh, un- unrelated to the show, I was just watching, I was just marathoning The Godfather. And I was like, eh, I'll watch Godfather 3 one more time. So uh, I had actually just watched it a couple months ago. It's I, I still contend it's not as bad as everyone thinks it is. It's not good, but it's not as bad. <laughs> um. Anyway, so, uh, so what you know? What scenes like struck you when you first watched it? What when you watched it? What did you think? What what scenes stuck out to you? Well, okay, I mean, are you talking about like now or when I first saw it? When you first saw it. All right. Well, when I first saw it, um, I mean, it the scene. Okay, let me start with this one because this one I think kind of helps sets the mood for the conversation as well. Um, well. I believe in America. Yes. That's that's obviously like the, the that's the line that starts you on this journey. And that's the same thing that happened with me where like I hear I believe in America and you hear, you know, the Undertaker's story about what happened to his daughter and how he can't get justice by legitimate means. So he's come to Don Corleone for help. That's of course that gets you right there, just throws you into that world. 
Um, that's why I thought it was just so brilliant. And when you hear like, you know, how like when they shot it, they intentionally had it like very minimal light, you know, very, keep it in the darkness to contrast, you know, what's going on with the wedding. You know, it's all in the bright in the sunlight, you know, as opposed to what's going on in uh, Don Corleone's study or his office or or whatever that place is. Um, but the uh, Sonny's death is also another one that kind of caught me because not only because of, of like how violent it is, but it's because when I first saw Godfather, it became kind of like when I first saw that scene. I kind of laughed, which is not the reaction you're supposed to have. And I'll tell you why I laughed. And you're going to know exactly why. Because there was an episode of The Simpsons, the infamous Mr. Plow episode, which everybody loves, <laughs> where uh, – so just to set it up, Homer drives the plow through the storm. You know, he guides the school bus through the storm and plows the, the, the road so that the kids can go to school, which robs them of a school day. So the principal Skinner goes, you know, we won't miss another minute of school thanks to your father. And all of a sudden the kids come out saying, say your prayers, plow boy. And all of a sudden all these kids jump, just show up from like the snowbank and start hitting Bart with snowballs. <laughs> so when I saw that scene finally, like I said, oh, this is where the Simpsons took it from. And I just started laughing. But <laughs> oh, so, so you, a, you started laughing because you got the reference finally. Exactly. So when exactly. you first saw it, you didn't realize they were referencing something. You just thought it was just being a joke. It was just something they came up with. Yeah, that happened a lot with Family Guy and with Simpsons. There's a lot of stuff that, like, as I got older, I discovered. Oh wait, they didn't come up with this. This is from something. So. Yeah, I noticed that. I mean, I'm not as big of a Simpsons file as you are, but as as I've gotten older and became more of a cinephile, as I watch, whenever I watch The Simpsons, and I'll and I'll catch something like. Oh, I get that joke now, you know? Yeah, that that's me. Every time now, like, even when I go back to watch some of the classics, you know, there's stuff that I miss or there's stuff that I didn't get before. Like, it, it's the same thing even with The Godfather when you rewatch it. That, that, you know, as they said in the documentary, and it's so true, you know, it's like rereading a novel. You know, it's like reading, like, this great epic novel that, you know, every time you read it, you catch something that you didn't catch before. And every time with me so far... It that's been the case, you know. That's why I love rewatching this movie. That's why I same here, you know. And it's funny because um, the and I, this isn't my favorite scene. I'm gonna get to my favorite scene in a minute, but I want to jump on what you just talked about. Uh, it's the I probably saw a movie like ten times before I finally understood the scene after um, after they are in the hospital and Michael. And uh, uh, and the other guy, the baker's son, you know, the Enzo, big, the Enzo, baker. Uh, the Enzo, the baker, you know, they 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 uh, hide Enzo Amori. Yeah, exactly. Uh, after they hide him, uh, hide him from the other gangsters, um, and they come out and they're you know pretending to be you know the the bodyguards. Uh, it took me forever to realize that Enzo's shaking like a leaf. Yes. and then Michael goes to light a cigarette, and then he realizes he's not shaking. And he understands, like, and he can't, and that the, the, it's per, it's such amazing acting from Bal Pacino because he conveys, in, in, he, without saying anything, he conveys the following. He looks at his hand, he realizes he's not shaking, and he conveys in just his face, I'm not shaking, I'm completely in control, I'm completely at ease. I know what I'm doing, and I'm in control of the situation. And he, and that's when the gears start to turn in his head. Of you know, maybe that is really when he starts to go towards the quote unquote dark side. Dark side, yeah, that's yeah. a brilliant scene. It took me so long, to, and because you know it's a it's a tense scene. So like I, I I'm just coming off of the tension of the scene. So it took me forever to just kind of take that moment in, and it's such a fantastic moment. 
Oh, absolutely, man. It's just uh, it's just subtle stuff like that that you might not catch the first time, but then once on repeat viewings, you'll be like, oh, wait a minute. That's awesome, you know? So, yeah. But, yeah, go, going back to, to, to my, you know, I believe in America, that, that scene struck me so hard. But it wasn't actually the first time I saw it because the first time I saw it, actually, I kind of came in, um, like, in the middle of the wedding sequence. Like, um, I think, you know... Uh, it may have uh, the first time I saw it. I, you know, I missed a, a couple of minutes. I think the first time I saw it, I, w- I came in watching um, whatever Michael was telling the um, was telling uh, Kay the uh, the Luca Brazzi story, and that's right. when I because and I think because that's what hooked me. I'm like, what is he talking about? What's going on here? And then I stayed for the rest of the movie. So I and missed. The, yeah, and the story of that whole Luca Brazzi scene from the commentary was absolutely awesome. Like I, I hear that, and it's the first time I'm hearing the story, and you know, it's just. You learn a lot from like directors like Coppola or Lucas or any of these guys, or these, any of these greats who do commentaries. You know, like one of the less the lesson here was like you just go with the flow. Like these little happy accidents that happened. You know, just you know you have to improvise, and then by doing that, he created this nice little in joke in the film. Are you talking about how he couldn't remember the lines? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who don't know. Uh, the Luca Brasi is played by a, a pro wrestler actually named Lenny Montana. Yes. Uh, and he's. Not a very experienced actor, and he was very nervous about doing a scene with Marlon Brando. Uh, so basically, they just mess with him. Like, they, they played a joke on him, right? Uh, and uh, because they knew that he wasn't able to remember the line, so they kind of made that part of, his, part of his character. Right, right. So, like, well, there's a couple, a couple things to add to that. So there would be some takes in that scene where, like, Luca Prati's with Don Corleone. He's like, you know, uh, Don Corleone, I'm honored and grateful, you know. So there was a few takes where, like, um, Marlon Brando would have, like, a note stuck to his forehead that said, F you. Yeah. Just, 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 just like that guy, man. Yeah. As soon as I heard that. So, like, you know, so, uh, a few of the takes, you know, uh, Lenny would have some trouble, like, keeping his composure because he'd just start cracking up as well. You know, so. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he he practiced the line, but, like, he can never get the line right the way it's supposed to be read in the script. So. What they did was after they filmed that scene, Coppola said, you know what? Why don't we do this? So he filmed uh, Luca Brasi, you know, Lenny Lenny Montana, I mean, outside practicing his line. So that that way, when they when he cut it together, he put that scene before the scene of him talking to Don Corleone. And then that scene now became a little in joke because you see this guy practicing and practicing his line and he still messes it up. So <laughs> and it's such a memorable scene, and it kind of endears you to Luca Brasi right away. Even though, like you know, that he's they just described him as this vicious killer that you know uh, uh, intimidated that band leader into uh, right. into giving um, <laughs> into giving uh, Johnny Fontaine his release from the contract, and. You know, but you don't care because that scene is so endearing to him, and it actually hits you a little harder whenever uh, spoilers. Uh, you know, he he gets assassinated later in the movie. Right. Um. But so yeah, so that that's a good scene. But the scene that got me the first time I ever watched the movie was uh, about uh, maybe an hour or so in, maybe maybe halfway, um, when Michael was in the restaurant. The restaurant, yes. Because that scene. I was literally, literally on the edge of my seat when I first watched it the first time because it's so tense. Because you know, because I, I mean, I'd never seen the movie before. I didn't know how, what was going to happen to Michael. Right? I knew that he had the gun, and and uh, and he, and 
and they played it so well because you know the first because because um tessio tells him what to do was it tessio yeah tessio tells him what to do when he comes out and he's supposed to come out and shoot shoot them both and then run out but he doesn't do that he sits down so then that's whenever the tension was, was and then the 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 sound of the the subway train and everything coming up and how that was amazing that got me and, and that hooked me like hook line and sinker during that scene yeah i actually just uh Tessie was the one that gave him the idea to put the uh, the gun behind the, the toilet thing it's actually clemenza oh, clemenza you're right it's clemenza. Clemenza. He's like you know two shots to the head you know drop the gun and don't look at anybody just walk away yeah i'm sorry i, I just mixed the two names up clemenza Right, but yeah, that's a great scene, and we can talk about, now that you brought that up, we can talk about how basically that's the scene that saved his job. Coppola, I mean. Yes, it is, you're right. Um, so, he had been filming a couple of days, and, you know, the studio had sent, you know, an- basically another director. I don't think they ever named him documentary, do they? No, they never named him, so we don't know who it is, yeah, but they did know. have somebody waiting in the wings. Basically, just kind of watching and, like, waiting for Coppola to screw up. Right, just waiting for him to mess up, but then they saw the the dailies of the of the um, of the restaurant scene, and then that's finally what 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 convinced the producers. All right, he knows what he's doing. Just leave him alone. Yeah, that whole that that whole first that that and that was shot the first week uh, when they when they started, and that whole thing was weird actually because it's like because he shoots that scene. I think it was like that was the third and fourth days of uh, of shooting. They shot the restaurant scene with those in those two days, and then you know which they like. But then, at the third week, he said he still was in danger of getting fired because of the scene at the olive oil company where Salazzo was talking to Don Corleone about the deal. Like they didn't like how those scenes came out. That they thought that Marlon Brando did terrible acting. That he was mumbling the whole time. So that's kind of that's kind of the weird thing about it. It's like that scene really did save his job, but they shot that scene the first week. But then in the third week he was still in danger of getting fired. So that's kind of, that whole thing is, this whole situation is wacky. Yeah, I mean, they were, um, I mean, let's just face it, like Coppola never got along well with that studio, the entire production, and even after the production, uh, Coppola and Robert Evans just did not see eye to eye. Um, Even after the film was done, you know, they told Coppola, you know, it can't be over like two hours and 15 minutes or something like that, right? And the movie is like two hours and 45 minutes. So... Coppola, being a smartass, was like, all right, fine. So he took out all, like, the major, like, emotional scenes and just ba- and it was just plot. He just kept the plot scenes. And then he turned that in. It was, like, two hours or something. And Robert Evans got all pissed off. He's like, you just, you uh, you know, uh, you shot a masterpiece or, and, and you gave me a trailer. And uh, so then, you know, they had to recut. So, so basically that was, a, that was Coppola's FU to, like, put all the stuff back in and make it basically a three-hour movie. Yeah, he, he he goes to say, you know, if I had left the the whole thing in, they would have sent it to LA. If I took the all of, all of it out, they would have sent it. They're sending it to LA. So either way, they were going to send it to LA. So it didn't matter what I did. So yeah. that's. But it ended up being fine. Like his cut is the one that survives. So, uh, so the final product is what Coppola originally envisioned. So that's good. Um, but so but there was always uh, friction between those two. Uh, <clears throat> You know, especially when it came down to, you know, just in even in the um, in the production in the pre-production, uh, the two major performances of this movie, Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, the studio didn't want. They didn't want any of those. Marlon Brando was box office poison at that point. He hadn't had a hit in probably like fifteen, twenty years. Like he was notoriously difficult to work with, 
And he was basically considered a joke. He was he was considered washed up and a has been at that point. Um, and I debate. So the way I understood from the documentary was that they basically, you know, they gave him an ultimatum. It's like, all right, you can have Marlon Brando, but first he has to do a screen test. Um, then he has to sign uh, a waiver of some sort, and also he has to do it for free. <laughs> uh, and and the- okay, so so he okay, so you, you're you got two thirds of it right. So it, the screen test was the one condition. The second one was the uh, he has to work for free. Yeah, that's second one. The third one was that he had to put up a bond that's collateral. Oh, that bond. way, that if any bond, of his yeah. antics were like you know. Uh, delay or cost, you know, cost them like shooting time. They'd be compensated for the losses. Yeah, that's what it was. You're right. It was a bond. I forgot about that. I, I, I thought it was sort of a waiver. It was a bond. You're right. And uh, <laughs> but so Coppola was basically like, all right, well, uh, sure. Not knowing, he just basically called their bluff, not knowing what he was going to do. So basically, he he went to to Brando's house and kind of tricked him into doing a screen test by doing a quote unquote makeup test, right? Uh, <laughs> where and then as he was doing the makeup test, Brando just kind of got into character on camera, and they filmed it. And then once they brought that back to the studio, you know, uh, they they realized okay, Brando Brando can do the Brando can do the movie, and then they actually paid him. Yeah, they forgot about the whole Bond thing. Like, like they didn't even bring that up again. Yeah. And then they uh, they hired him. They had him. They they were paying him, but they didn't pay him that much. I don't know exactly how much it was, but he mentioned it was very little compared to what he would normally make. Yeah, and and I think that that kind of uh, friction or or bad blood is why he didn't appear in part two. I actually don't know exactly why. He just said that they didn't work. They weren't able to work it out. But yeah, I don't know they weren't exactly. Really, I thought it was. It had to do with money. It's usually money with these situations, anyway, right? Well, so, not with uh, with Clemenza. That was another. Well, issue. Clemenza was that was a weird one. So yeah. So yeah. for those who don't know, the reason Clemenza never appeared in Godfather Two, uh, he was supposed to, but he he had this stipulation in his contract that his girlfriend or it was his girlfriend, right? Yeah, got would um got to write all his lines over in the script, and basically everyone's like, no, <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> so they basically wrote him out. Like, that what's, he was the, dead. what's the logic? Behind, I'm just I'm I'm hearing that story and I'm just thinking, what's the logic behind that, man? Like, no, and and like you know, and no offense to the actor who played Clemenza, who um uh Richard Castellano, I think his name is right. No, okay. no offense to him, but. You weren't the reason of the success of The Godfather 1. I mean, you were a good, great part of it, and I'm glad you were there, but the movie did not succeed because of you. So who did you think you were to make sort of these sort of demands? You know, Right. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, talk about a wacky situation there. Um, but yeah, that's why uh, he and that's why they write him out in replacement of Frankie Five Angels, who and Clemens is dead, and Frankie Five Angels is the new uh, head of the Corleone family in New York. That's what. That's why it's that's why it's like that. Um, but yeah, so uh, Brando, there was. I mean, there was bad blood. I think it had to do with money. That's why he didn't appear in two. But you know what? I, you know what? I think it actually that last scene in in Godfather Two uh, works without him. Actually, I think it works a little better with that I, I, scene. I agree. I agree. Yeah, but um, and then the other one they didn't want was Al Pacino, who was basically an unknown, and they didn't. And, and apparently in the book, um, he's uh, Michael is not written to look like Al Pacino. Michael is is written to look like a quote unquote northern Italian who are much taller and and you know blonde even. And they originally had Robert Redford in mind. Yes, I heard. Yes, that was part of the uh, the commentary too that you know the studio wanted 
Robert Redford. And, you know, they kind of got annoyed when, you know, he tried to cast Al Pacino, who was, you know, shorter and who was like, who looks like an authentic Italian. I think he is Italian. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so he he got to fall, he fought for a lot of things, man. So I I do not envy this man and the battles he had to go through with this film. I mean, it, it's it's a lot like it's. I mean, it is kind of a lot like um, with Citizen Kane, where we were talking a lot about on that film. Right, the how, parallels are there too, not yeah. just the backstage stuff, but even like in the, the themes, which we can talk about later. Yeah, where we're just you know. <laughs> The director had a vision, and he had to fight for that vision, like, every step of the way. But, I mean, even after, you know, he had Pacino, you know, almost cast, the studio was like, you know what? Test James Caan in that role, who was already cast as Sonny. Sonny was already right. – he was already as – and then, you know, he tested as, as James Caan. Uh, uh, Martin Sheen tested for it. And the, you can find that footage on the on the uh, Coppola Restoration DVD. Uh, it, it's it's weird. It's weird to see Martin Sheen do that role, um, <laughs> and it, it doesn't work at all. It, it, but for the most, but I mean, to be fair though, also Martin Sheen had like you know long hair and this ridiculous mustache. And, like, he looked like he was out of a just walked out of 1971. You know, <laughs> um, but uh, it, uh, De Niro tested for for Sonny at one point. Um, which actually probably could have worked. But it could have worked. It could have worked. But, but the way it ended up was better with him as Vito in part two. Young yeah. Vito, I should say. Yeah. Uh, James Caan, I mean, I can't think of anybody who would have done uh, Sonny better, even though James Caan isn't really Italian. He's a Jew. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, he, he's To me, he's the perfect Sonny. Uh, and and Pacino's, Pacino's Michael. I mean, come on. He's Michael. Oh, yeah. I, I, it, it's, so, it, it's so mind-boggling. To know that 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 almost didn't happen, you know that that if the studio would have just pushed harder, that never would have happened. And if you, but that's such an iconic role. Like if anybody else would have played it, it wouldn't have worked. Well, that was the idea, you know, with this cast with not not his casting, but Coppola's hiring in the first place. You know, this is a guy that's pretty much straight out of film school. You know, he didn't really have any, he didn't have any hits to his credit at this point. They figured they could hire him cheap, you know, and just push him around because. You know what stroke does he have at this point? Yeah, but Coppola... the, the fact that he was able to stand his ground and just fight for everything that he wanted, you know, big ups to Coppola because you know I I find it hard to uh, like it just putting myself in his shoes. I don't know if I I would have been able to fight the way he did. Yeah, it it, it you know he 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 put up a great fight. Obviously, he fought for his vision and he won. Um, and it's I'm kind of I'm because I mean. If you were in that situation, would you would you have, would you have fought as hard as he had, or would you have been like, all right, I guess I'll just do what they say? Yeah, I mean, it, it's easy to say, you know, of, of course I, I would have fought for everything. I would have fought for my. But once you're in that situation, when, when you're actually in that situation, you know, then becomes a story. Then a lot of things come into play, like you know, just who you are as a person, like just how how you were brought up, and just different things come into play. You know, your values, and then that kind of like may skew it a little bit. Yeah, and, and the thing is, I'm sure we're going to do other Coppola films, as you know, uh, in this in this podcast. I'm sure we'll do Godfather Two. I'm sure we'll do Apocalypse Now. I'm sure we'll do the conversation. Uh, but one thing that you have that that kind of repeats itself uh, in history with Coppola movies, or at least his m- more famous ones, is that the dude just doesn't he doesn't he doesn't care. I mean, he cares. He, <laughs> he doesn't care what you have to say. He's just going to do it. Like. He cares only about his vision, and he does not care what you have to think about the situation. He's just going to do what he wants, and that's admirable. 
yeah, oh, I agree. He, despite whether it succeeds or not, he sticks to his vision. <laughs> you know, so that that, that that's that's an admirable quality there. Yeah. So let's jump back to the beginning again. The I believe in America speech, the very beginning, which is after the when I watched the movie the second time, is actually the scene that really like grabbed me. And it should have. I mean, I wish I would have seen it from beginning to end the first time. But you know, when I finally found watched it from beginning to end, that scene was like, holy crap. That was amazing, like because I mean it's literally the first words in the in the movie. I believe in America, and that completely encapsulates the film. Do you want to tell the story of that scene, like how it came to be? Do you want me to do it? Go ahead. All right. So uh, Coppola has said that uh, originally, when he was writing the when he started writing The Godfather, he was going to start with the wedding scene. It was just going to pan right into. You know, the, the wedding reception, everybody dancing and all that. So he had written like he, he frozen. No, he actually he wrote the, the film Patton with uh, George C. Scott. And if you remember, if you've seen Patton, you know that that film starts very uniquely with, with the with the big speech. And the American uh, flag. Yep. It's, just, it's great, great freaking film. Great, great, great opening. So he gave once he had finished about like four or five pages, whatever he said, he gave the the script to somebody to look over just you know to give him like you know tips or advice or criticism and uh this friend said to him well you know in Patton you had such a unique opening you know which made it memorable so you should probably do the same thing for the godfather not just go straight to the reception so that was like kind of the inspiration for him to go back and say you know what let me put something ahead of this to kind of start it in a in a in a unique way and then he remembered this from the novel the story of Bonacera, the Undertaker, the uh, about what happened to his daughter and how he wants to get justice, kind of what, what I talked about earlier. And he said, you know what, that's 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 an interesting way to start the film, you know, because kind of start in the darkness, you know, which contrasts, you know, with with the with the brightness of the of the wedding reception. So that's how that came to be. And once it tested, once they tested that uh, the film in front of you know test audience or whatever, they 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 loved it. So you know, he owes he owes that uh, that beginning to that friend. Whoever that is, you know it's. It, I I love that scene so much because it's. I mean that's a great story, but it, it, I love that scene so much because even on a high def television on Blu-ray, with your television perfectly calibrated to the color and the brightness and the hue and everything, the when that comes up, it's so like almost black yes that you kind of just see like the little twinkle in each one of the guy's eyes like from the from the from the light in the room just kind of like that's that's basically almost all you see and he's saying he's telling the story in this one unbroken take you know and he's telling the story about his daughter and it's just such an amazing like that is filmmaking right there. and the zoom out in that scene because when you when it opens you, it's like a, it's not an, I guess it's an extreme close up of Bonacera's face, and as he's telling the story, it slowly pulls back. Now in 1970, that time they couldn't really do that effectively, so they were to come up with like this, uh, like kind of computer programmed type of thing where like it would like slowly pull back on its own at like timed intervals, which was an innovation for the time, right? Because they couldn't do that practically before. Right, and I'm I'm sure Gordon Willis is, was pulling his hair out. Gordon Willis, who who is oh yeah, <laughs> who, who is uh, who's been nicknamed the Prince of Darkness because of how well he works with 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 black and dark. Um, 
And, and boy, in this film, he had a lot of black and dark to work with, especially in that opening sequence. Uh, it is, but it is to this day one of the most beautiful looking movies ever made. Um, and I, you know, I one of the things I, I kind of wish, I, I mean, I, you know, watching it in Blu-ray and high def is awesome. But I would love to see this film like projected on a big screen. You know, if I ever see like so, like uh, anybody showing an actual print of it, I'm gonna go out of my way to see it. Oh, because, definitely, yeah, me too. Um, you know, and it's it, it's it's a shame too because um, uh, my local art house theater recently just did a 70 millimeter print of uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey, and I just co- I could not get to see it. I, I oh, wanted so man. bad to go see it, I just did not. I was unable to go. But if if I hear about the Godfather playing you know in in, in a, a real print on a projector i have to go out of my way to see it oh absolutely but yeah you you touched on it i love that the the transition of you know it's he's in that scene it's very quiet and he's just talking about what he's gonna how he's going to you know get vengeance for his daughter and this and that and then as soon as that scene's over bam right into the wedding it's just this huge like almost smash cut Right into the wedding, uh, and and then it's just it's beautifully beautifully done. Um, what else I love about what else what I love about the scene just from a storytelling perspective is that you see Vito uh, Vito Corleone by played by Marlon Brando here. Kind of you you get the sense of his character immediately. You get this guy. You can already tell. I mean, you know it's a gangster movie going in, but you know, all right, here's a man of power. Here's a man who. Uh, understands his lot in life, but he still gets insulted by things, and then he uses that to manipulate <laughs> someone into doing what he wants. And then by doing by doing that, he he makes it seem like I'm gonna do you a favor, but you're gonna have to give me this favor back later. What I have what I, what have I done to you, Adolfo, to make you treat me so disrespectfully? <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the guy just so sheepishly like, be my friend? Godfather. <laughs> Godfather. It's like it's so pathetic. It's yeah. so pathetic, but like so, you know, like well, what else are you supposed to do in that moment? You know, like I guess be my friend. You know, yeah, come to me in friendship. The the men who did harm to your daughter will be suffering this very day. <laughs> yeah. So and then so when he makes them like is like and this may this day may never come but you know someday you'll be called upon to do me a favor so and then like you remember that because you know they're not gonna let that go and then you remember that the whole movie like how is he what's he gonna do to this poor undertaker like what is he gonna do to this poor guy to make him and then later on you find it's actually kind of touching what he does later is whenever Sonny gets killed and actually that's another piece of brilliant acting that you know. Brando has this, he had such a horrible reputation for everything he did off off camera, but on camera, I mean, the man was amazing. The scene where he's in the the funeral parlor and he's like, oh. I "I'm not going to do a Brando impression because I suck at Brando impressions, so I'm not going to." That's why I'm not even attempting. I'm not I'm even going to. I'm not even going to do it. But when he's like, "Look what they did to my boy," that I I almost like. Almost every time it gets me. It's just such a beautiful moment. Like, and that's what he's using his favor for is to is to make the make his his boy look look presentable in a coffin. I I don't know if you remember this, but I think it was like maybe around the end of last year, maybe like around September ish. I remember seeing that I think somebody had released like a deleted scene from The Godfather that wasn't on like the the Blu-ray about about Bonacera when he gets called to do the favor. I don't know if you remember this. Have you seen this? No, I don't know what this is. So okay, so if I remember correctly, there's it's the scene right uh, right before um, 
he shows up at the funeral parlor, right? So Bonacera's in his house. He's getting his coat, and he's, like, kind of complaining to his wife. He goes, like, oh, my God. I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing right now because I can't remember the lines word for word. But he's basically saying, you know, what are they going to have me do? Am I going to have me, like, bury a body? Are they going to have me, like, you know, commit some sort of murder for him? You know, and uh, and then right before he leaves the house, he says to his wife, you know, curse the day that you met. Um, I forgot. Uh, uh, what what's what's Vito's wife's name? I can't remember. But it, you know what? I never remember. I don't. Remember. I don't remember either. But like it was a. Uh, they basically basically say you know, curse the day that you ever met her. You know, because now he's in the situation. And then after that scene, then it's supposed to cut to like the elevator going down to meet him in the in the parlor. I tried to find that scene on the Blu-ray, but I couldn't. And but I remember watching it on YouTube because, it, it, like, there was an article that made a big deal out of this scene, like, coming out. Yeah, I don't remember ever seeing that. I mean, I'll try to find it and I'll send it to you. But I mean, when I saw that the first, I was like, "Oh, this is awesome!" You know, I would have loved for this to have been in the film. Uh, apparently, her name is Carmela. I just looked it up, Carmela. Yeah, he goes like, "Like, curse the day that you ever met Carmela Corleone," and then he leaves, and that's the, where the scene ends. Hmm. Interesting. I know. I gotta. I gotta dig that one up. So the other thing I wanted to talk about is how that wedding sequence at the very beginning. That wedding sequence did does something that I think that no movie or not that no movie has ever done, but that few movies do well is that in one scene, and if you count the wedding sequence as one scene, it introduces literally every character in the mill in the film. Yep. Every almost every major character in the not not you not just have Vito and Michael, you have Kay, you have Tessio, you have Clemenza, you have uh Tom Hagen, you have Sonny, you have Fredo, you have Luca Brasi, you even have uh, Barzini, the one of the heads of the five families. Uh, you have a guy who Don Corleone respected enough to invite to his daughter's wedding, despite what would come later. So I right. thought that was pretty awesome. Right. Uh, you have Carlo, obviously, who 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 um, who Connie is marrying. Connie is the daughter. She's marrying him. Um, and you 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 who's the guy? What's the guy's name who um who turns on the who turns on the Corleones with the what's the guy? What's the character's name? The, which guy who turns on them? The guy who who sells out uh, Vito and then ha- gets him shot. Uh, Polly. Polly. I couldn't remember his name. Polly. Polly's in that scene. Like every, almost every character. The only people you don't see in that scene are the are the Sicilians in in, in from Sicily. Like those are the only the only people in the in, in the movie that you don't see in that scene because you meet them later. But it, it's kind of amazing that that you fit. They fit every single character in that scene. Oh, absolutely. And um, that's the thing that uh, that kind of made filming that scene a little difficult for Coppola because he only had two days to shoot it. And this is like this was the scene that had to pretty much introduce all these like cast of characters. And I think he said he was under duress when he was doing this because he kind of had like studio like henchmen over his shoulder saying you have to get it done in two days or, you know, you only you can use what you have and that's it. So, uh, you know, for such an important scene, like he kind of wanted to take his time. But, you know, he uh, he was. Felt very rushed in the process. Yeah, and not just not just introduce not just introduce the the characters, but also introduce plot points like Johnny Fontaine. When Johnny Fontaine shows up, you introduce that entire plot point uh, and about how. And by the way, so do you believe? So Johnny Fontaine is basically Frank Sinatra here, right? Uh, uh, pretty much, exactly. I mean, so, I think Coppola even said it. He says, like, oh, he's supposed to be a Frank Sinatra-like character, because I don't think he, he wants to say it is Frank Sinatra, so he doesn't get sued, right? But how, how, like, you know, he tries to kind of cover up the thing about saying, because, you know, there's a lot of people who think that the story about 
him getting, you know, the story that's told in the movie about him getting, uh, about them going out to Hollywood and basically intimidating Waltz to to put him in the movie is a lot of people think that's that's how Frank Sinatra got the part and from here to eternity because Frank Sinatra was not considered a real actor until right. he got and then he got that role and he became a big star, big acting star and won an Oscar. So, yeah, but we'll <laughs> never know if that's true. Not even Coppola said it. We'll never know, but it's there's a lot of. There's a lot of similarities in that story, and Frank Sinatra has. I mean, it's it's. I mean, I'm not disparaging the man. Great singer and everything, but it has uh, come out in in biographies and things like that that he had he had a little. He knew some mobsters. He knew some <laughs> mobsters. I'm just saying he knew some. So uh, maybe maybe there's a little smoke to that fire. My voice is is weak. It's weak. Anyway, uh, if I had this part in the picture, you know, it puts me right back up on top again. But this, uh, this man out there, he won't give it to me. The head of the studio. What's his name? Waltz. Waltz. He, he won't give it to me. And uh, he says, there's no chance. No chance. A month ago, he bought the movie rights to this book, a bestseller. And the main character is a guy just like me. Why, uh, you know, I wouldn't even have to act. Just be myself. Godfather, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can act like a man! What's the matter with you? Is this how you turn down a Hollywood Pinocchio that uh, cries like a woman? (laughs) What can I do? What can I do? What is that nonsense? Ridiculous. You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Mm. You look terrible. I want you to eat. I want you to rest well, and a month from now, this Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. It's too late. They start shooting in a week. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. <laughs> what I like about the what about the Johnny Fontaine sequence that I actually didn't know until I rewatched this documentary, I didn't realize was that the the whole veto smacking the crap out of him and so you can act like a man was was so Marlon could get a reaction out of the Al Martino, the actor playing Johnny Fontaine. Yeah, he apparently he had a problem like reacting to the scene properly, like showing the proper emotion. So kind of Brando had to kind of make up for that with like kind of go overboard with the slapping, but. It's one of my favorite scenes because every time, every time I want someone to you know quote unquote man up, I always think of that scene. I always want to grab someone, and slap him, and go, "You can act like a man." <laughs> uh, such a great, it's such a great, and that's also another. I mean, I know it was just a way to get uh, Al Martino to react properly, but it's such a great demonstration of 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 Vito because that's like the first time you ever see him. Actually, I think it's the only time you ever see him angry in the whole movie. Because he's always cool and collected. Yeah, and I then think you're right. That's the first time, like you're like, oh wait, this guy can snap if he needs to, and and show and show, and then immediately afterwards, what do he do? He kind of gives him a loving pat in the cheek. He's like, all right, you're good. Okay, take care of yourself. Are you taking care of your family because he managed to spend time with his family. Blah blah. blah. So like immediately afterwards, he like, goes back into like that fatherly mode. Yeah, I want to uh, make sure you get something to eat, <laughs> you know, and all that. <laughs> yeah. Um. And we'll talk about real quick about. I mean, we're not going to go through every scene, but there's a couple things I want to talk about. Some of the well, there, well, there's scenes. one that there's one scene we 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 need to talk about, and I think it's like 
I think it's the most infamous scene that everyone, the one everyone remembers. The, the you know horse, what I'm talking? The horses. Oh yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk about that because um, I actually, I don't. I guess I must not have watched this documentary before because I did not realize this whenever I watched the, when I watched the movie because I always assumed um, the horse's head is a horse's head. All right, all right, folks. Before you get all your your uh, you know all, your your panties in the bunch, I kind of want to say it a little better, but sorry. Before you get all your panties in the bunch, just listen listen to this. So this is not a cannibal holocaust situation here. What happened was that um, they actually went to uh to like a dog food plant because back then I don't know if it still happens now, but back then that's you know horse meat was what went into everybody's the animal lovers as Coppola says it the animal lovers dog food that they they were eating like horse meat so they didn't they didn't like kill a horse while they were there or anything like they just looked at the horses and then I forgot who I don't know it wasn't Coppola it was somebody else who actually made the pick and he picked this particular horse and he told the the, the people running the the slaughterhouse he says the day you slaughter this one send this to head so when that day came you know, they, they slaughtered the horse, and then, like, a few days later, they got a big crate full of dry ice, and inside was the horse's head. So there you go. So so this whole time I've been watching this movie for years and years and years, I just assumed, okay, they just made, like, a dummy paper mache head. They got some food coloring, you know, and then – and I'm sure some of that blood was just, you know, obviously the blood was Yeah, the blood fake. was probably fake, yeah. But, but I just assumed that was a fake head. No, so that, that was a real freaking head. That was a real freaking That's head. That's messed up. But, hey, it worked, right? Uh, of course it worked. Uh, yeah, that's the most famous scene in the movie. Um, now, I kind of wanted to tell that story because I wanted an excuse to bring up Cannibal Holocaust. But now, <laughs> now that I said it, now we can move on. You know, I, I still haven't actually watched that movie. Because it's one of those movies that, like, not to de- de- you know derail the conversation here. It's one of those things that, like, I know the reputation of that movie. And I don't know if I can actually just sit through it. Because I don't know if I actually want to sit through it. It's yeah. kind of like it's kind of like yeah. Human Centipede, and I know it's not it's, <laughs> it, it's not on the same level of quality or whatever. But it's like, yeah, I know what this movie's about. I I kind of want to do a show on it one day. I mean, not on Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, not not immediate like in the immediate future, but like you know, eventually, I kind of do want to do a show on it because like all the stuff I've been reading about the production and like the the notoriousness and the history, it's just like as disgusting as as it all is. It's it's still intriguing at the same time. Yeah, so, I, I could I could do it. I just but that's that gives me an excuse to watch it, right? So I'll do it as an excuse to watch for the show, right? But it, given given my brothers, I'm not gonna watch it by myself. Like I just don't. Want well, to oh, it. of course. Well, me and me it, with me, it was like I was just curious. I was like, you know, I've heard all this stuff about this movie, and I kind of, you know, just as a cinephile, I kind of wanted to just rip the bandaid off, get it out of the way. So there's two versions on the Blu-ray. There's the regular version, and there's the animal cruelty free, which is the one I'm gonna be watching from now on. The original I'm only watching once. I saw it once. I'm never watching it again. uh, But the Animal Cruelty one, Animal Cruelty free version is the one I'll be watching from henceforth if I ever decide to pull it out again. That's funny that they they have an Animal Cruelty free one. Well, I mean, bro, there's a Grindhouse releasing before the movie starts. They they have an opening crawl that literally says what you will see will shock and offend you. But to center that would be to stifle free speech. And they quote Thomas Jefferson. It's kind of hilarious when you read it. But I mean, like, no, I agree you should see the film in its original format and everything. I, I don't agree with what the filmmakers did uh, right. to get that. Um, and I, I and I agree that it's it's a, an, important, an important film in the history of cinema. I just 
I just need an excuse to watch it. I'll, if it's for a show, that that's a good enough excuse. I, I mean, in analytical terms, legit, like this is what is it, basically it's the epitome of like filmmaking the way that type of filmmaking was at that time with just the sheer irresponsibility so it's kind of like a uh like uh a time capsule into that period which that's what makes it even more fascinating just going past all the like all the ugliness and hideousness of it so no i get it i get it it just yeah but but when you want to do it let me know and i'll 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 find a copy and i'll watch it but uh, make sure yeah. make sure the wife and kid are sleeping when oh yeah do that. no absolutely not but I, i'm actually i have to be very careful about what, what i watch now because the, the 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 baby is actually starting to pay attention to the tv now so uh, well i would suggest watching this after they once everybody's asleep and all that but the problem is like i uh i watched it like at 1 a.m when I first saw it, and like I couldn't sleep after that, so I don't know if you want to <laughs> want to try to do maybe, that. Maybe, maybe I'll take eight. a day off and watch it in the middle of the afternoon at like two there you p.m. Go. There no you go. Home. Well, you make sure there's sunlight out, yeah, so exactly. you feel safe. <laughs> anyway, okay, back 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 to the horse's head. <laughs> back to the horse's head. Yeah, real head messed up. Uh, but I mean, they didn't kill the horse for the scene. They didn't cannibal holocaust it, but they did use. You know, I mean, the horse was already dead, so they were gonna. So they used it as a prop. Kind of messed up, but. What are you gonna do? Yeah, but it's still it, you got the the most famous scene of, of this entire movie, probably. Yeah, the the most famous scene. Um, it's the and... one that's probably been most parodied. Is the one that everybody talks about. Oh my god, the horse's head, and and uh, you know, so like, yeah, it's it's a great scene. I mean, I mean, there's so much stuff that's influ- that's influential, or not even just influential, but iconic pop culture references. The horse's head. I'm gonna make it an offer you can't refuse. I believe in America. Um, the uh, you know, we're uh, going to the mattresses. That's a term that people use. Like yeah. I, heard, I actually heard that term so many times before I actually saw the movie. I'd never understood it. Now I get it. You know, yeah. and I was like, what the hell does that mean? Going to the mattresses? <laughs> um, now leave I the gun, take the cannoli. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. You know, um, yeah. Which when I first saw that movie, I didn't know what a cannoli was. I thought it was like some sort of like meat thing. <laughs> but but it's actually a very delicious dessert. I actually, I actually kind of hate cannoli. I hate can I hate like okay. Oh wait, 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 wait a minute. So you we're hate gonna get thin into this mints. here. I hate thin mints. I hate chocolate mints. Uh, I just don't like. I in general, I just don't like Italian dessert. I don't like tiramisu. Okay, so you hate thin mints. You hate coconut. You hate cannoli. I don't like, like cannoli. I, hate's a strong word for cannoli. I should say hate is a strong word. I just don't like them. It's not my thing. I also okay. don't like tiramisu, which I know people what don't oh. like tiramisu. I love cheesecake. What about tres leche? Oh yeah, tres leche. I'll eat tres leche. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Okay. But but there and flan. I can eat flan all day. Uh, okay. But but tiramisu, eh? You know, cannoli, eh? <laughs> I will say that every time I watch the movie and I'm and I have it on in the background here as a kind of inspiration while we're doing the show. But every time I watch the movie and right before the scene where they go to the restaurant, uh, they're all sitting around just eating Chinese food. And every time I see the scene, I'm like, man, I want some Chinese food now. <laughs> right every time every time well, well here's what's funny like every actually whenever i see rush hour one or two i get hungry for chinese food but i don't know <laughs> no, that's I don't just know racist. That, i was gonna say like does that make me look racist <laughs> no but you think the godfather you think when i watch the movie i'd want like pasta lasagna, or, lasagna. Yeah. no i want chinese food because <laughs> of that one scene <laughs> um uh, so, oh, the other and the other famous scene that, that's parodied is the one uh, Sunny on the Causeway. But that's the other famous yeah. one, which is, um, you know, it's funny because you said you laughed at it, but only because you, um, 
you got you finally got the Simpsons reference. Yes. But when you watch it, it's actually first of all, it's extraordinarily violent. Like yeah. I think it's still as far as today goes, you could put that film in a movie today and it would people wouldn't like I mean, you could you laughed at it for the wrong reason, but people wouldn't laugh at it. People would be yeah. it would still like it would still play as a legitimately violent scene. And first of all, so, so uh, I, I love the interview that uh, James Kahn gave, where um, they're 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 putting up all the squibs. And for those who know, squib is the, a blood packet that bursts to make it look like you've been shot. Um, they put they put all these squibs on them, and the 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 uh, stunt the stunt choreographer or the makeup guy I don't know who actually was I think it's a stunt guy uh, when he was uh, putting them up was saying, yeah, I don't think I've ever put 147 squibs on a person before. And James Conn's <laughs> like, maybe you should have told me that later. Right now, not the time to tell me that. But you know, they basically only had one shot at this, and it it worked beautifully. Conn delivered the performance of getting shot and he looked like he was in complete agony and they they got it in one take pretty much now not to segue again but like the simpsons parody that scene twice actually the first time was with the snowballs and the second time was actually with james Conn when he, he actually guest starred on the show and what happened <laughs> and what happened was now i don't remember the episode like the plot but what ended up happening was uh you know, a Cletus and Brandine. So Brandine actually left Cletus at the end of this episode to go with James Conn. Why? I don't know. I, I don't remember the episode, but I just watched the video on YouTube. So so Brandine runs off with James Conn, but, and Cletus is mad. So he's like, all right, don't worry. I'm going to get my vengeance on him. So uh, James Conn pulls up to a toll booth again, and he goes, like, oh, my God, I remember I hate toll booths. This is what he says. So all of a sudden, like, the, the hillbillies come out with their guns and start shooting at him in the sa- exact same way as the, the Godfather. And finally, when he collapses, the guy comes up to him and kicks him in the face, like in The Godfather. <laughs> and all of a sudden, James Kong wakes up and goes, like, I knew I should have taken a plane. So... <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I love James Kong in this movie. It's, he's so good. Um, but the uh, – and oh, you know what? The other thing we didn't mention about that scene is it was, um, it was inspired by the very end of Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, yeah, see, oh, that's that's a big one too. Coppola mentioned that when uh when that scene was coming up, he said, you know, he uh took it from Arthur Penn and the the finale of a uh, Bonnie and Clyde when they get shot, and and when you when you think about that and then you watch the scene, you're like, of course, like yeah, and it's funny because I didn't watch Bonnie and Clyde until I saw uh until I was in college, like well after I'd seen The Godfather a billion times, and then when I finally when I finally saw Bonnie and Clyde and I saw the end of that the, that that film. I was like, oh, I think I know where. Like, I, I saw the correlation. Like, no one had to tell me. Yeah. It was like, I was like, I immediately saw the correlation. It's like, oh, this reminds me of Sonny's death. And then, you know, Coppola just confirmed it on the on the commentary. But right. But it, and that's but, what's funny too, because like Bonnie and Clyde for me, that was one of my post Scarface films, like that I dug up right after I saw Scarface, and I was kind of in the whole gangster kick. You know, Godfather, Untouchables, Casino, Goodfellas, and Bonnie and Clyde was the other one too. That's a great movie too. We, we're, yeah, we'll, we'll do that one at some point on this show too. But, oh, definitely. Uh, but that's a great movie too. So before we get into a couple of other things, I do want to say that unfortunately, in the last year, we've lost two Godfather alumni. Uh, just recently, we lost Abe Vigoda. Abe Vigoda, who they did not put in the Oscar ceremony in the the um, in memoriam, which annoyed me. Well, they but, didn't put Bing Bong in it either. <laughs> they didn't put no, they didn't. Uh, but they they did put Alex Rocco, who we also lost. Alex Rocco played uh, Mo yeah. Mo Green. Um, but we did, you know, we did lose two Godfather actors this year. That was a little sad. Um, yeah, and and what's kind of amazing about um, about Abe Vigoda, I mean, he was at this point he's probably in his forties or fifties, and he he was a walk on. 
he was he just kind of auditioned and he I don't think he had a lot of I don't think he had any film experience before. Uh, well, yeah, no, nothing like nothing noteworthy. Coppola said that what he likes to do with with his films, he likes to have open calls. Yeah. That way, you know, people who like actors who don't really have credits to their name yet, who don't really have like the agents to help them get good parts, like they kind of just you know try to get parts for themselves in these open calls. You know, he likes to be able to discover like unknowns and like hidden talent, and that's how he found a Bogota. Like he just came in one of these open calls, he auditioned, he loved them, and he cast them, and then he be, went on to become this pretty big star. Yeah, I mean, he was. I mean, I, I, and and he went on to become a big uh, TV star. He has in that show Fish, and uh, uh, but I mean, he, he's Tessio here. That's where he got his major start, and I just I just kind of think that's that's fantastic that this guy who was, you know. On the on the op, like clearly in his later years, not like he wasn't in the sixties or anything, but he was older, and um, yeah, and, and he gets this huge break, you know, in a, in an enormous movie like The Godfather, um, and then Alex Rocco is the other one, and I I, I love Mo Green, I, even though Mo Green has like one scene in the whole movie, uh, other than him getting shot through the eye, um, he's got one scene in the whole movie, it's a very memorable scene. Hey, Mike. Hello, fellas. Everybody's here. Freddy, Tom, good to see you, Mike. How are you, Mo? All right. You got everything you want? The chef cooked for you special. The dancers will kick your tongue out, and your credit is good. Drug chips for everybody in the room so they can play in the house. Yeah. My credit good enough to buy you out? <laughs> buy me out. A casino. A hotel. The Corleone family wants to buy you out. Corleone family wants to buy me out. No, I buy you out. You don't buy me out. It's so... It just sounds so authentic to me that that character would talk like that, that Mo Green seems real. Like, Mo Green seems like a real yeah. person because of that accent. Well, there's the Simpsons connection there, too. Of course <laughs> there is! Of course there is! Well, Alex Rocco played Roger Myers Jr. in The Simpsons, which was a prominent oh. character, you know? Oh. So... I mean, it was he was a current character, that. but but uh, he was one of the most more memorable of like the side characters in this in that whole show. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, awesome. I, I, I keep bringing it back. So. Yeah, well, clearly the uh, clearly the um, the Simpsons uh, writers and and uh, creators are, are big Godfather fans. They're all they're all movie geeks over there. Because well, they cast uh, they cast Alex Rocco as Roger Myers Jr. They cast uh, Joe Mantegna. I think that's his how you say his name as uh, Fat Tony. As Fat Tony, so, right. who played Joey Zaza in Part Three. Yeah. So, did, did they, does uh, Andy Garcia ever show up? I think he did. I'm sure he did once. I just can't remember <laughs> off the top of my head. Well, I know Al Pacino didn't, but yeah, and Marlon Brando, I'm sure didn't, but no. <laughs> Well, James Conn has been there twice, I think. Oh, now. James Conn, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Everyone, everyone showed up on The Simpsons at some point. Yep. <laughs> um, and that show is still going. Yeah. So, unfortunately, that show a, a, a is little still off going. topic. I was going to ask a little off topic. Are, do you, do you, are you one of the people that thinks it's 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 dead and it should stay dead, or 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 did you do you think it can still go? Uh, not 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 to go too long on this. I'll just say this this one thing about it. The longer it goes on, the more its reputation gets tarnished. So uh, I see. It, it's uh, better to just like end it now while <laughs> some of its dignity is intact. Hmm. If it, 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 I mean, some people think it has no dignity left. So <laughs> wow, but they keep making more seasons. So hey, yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm surprised because I don't even, I don't know anybody who's still watching it. Or do you still watch it? 
No. <laughs> when I watch The Simpsons, I go back to watch the first 12 seasons. That's oh, okay. that's what I consider The Simpsons at this point. There's a couple like later season episodes that I like, like the one they did about 24, which is awesome. There's a couple other ones too, but the late the anything after 12, I really can't I, I quote to you. Like I can, can't with the other ones. You know? Do you, did you, did you like the movie? Now I haven't watched it in a while, maybe about like maybe a year or two. So I should probably revisit it and. I'll give you a better idea, but I I still enjoy it just from my memories of it. But to him, he he does he thinks it hasn't aged well. So we're brought, we're probably not going to be reviewing the Simpsons movie on the Essential Films podcast. Well, I'll be throwing it in the <laughs> in our uh, our little machine there, which we'll introduce later. But yeah, I, I don't think it'll make it to the machine. <laughs> I have a, I have a funny feeling. <laughs> um, all right, so before we move on to to. Uh, to anything else because I, I wanted to talk about the the final sequence in the film did you before we move on to that did you have anything else you wanted to mention um actually well let me see uh actually i don't think so i think we pretty much covered all like all the big uh the big moments of the well, film yeah, actually, we, this we, point. we didn't talk to we didn't we didn't talk about sicily at all actually that's right that's right the sicily sequence now uh which which actually shot in sicily which added to the budget of course of the film of which course. the uh the studio was not happy about but you know coppola wanted to wanted authenticity so they shot in sicily and you know every time i will see that scene i'm like you know it merely makes me want to go to italy it really makes me want to go to sicily like uh it just such a, it's so beautifully shot it, it looks gorgeous and uh, i yeah. i'm I, I don't have the the time or the money right now to go to Sicily, but <laughs> if and when I do, I, I I'm gonna totally go. Um, but what's funny is that Pacino didn't speak Italian, uh, but the character was supposed to speak Italian. Yeah, but uh, they, they they worked around that. They worked around it, and I think it actually works better whenever he you know when he first meets uh, Apollonia's father. Uh, and and asked to you know start the official courtship that he works through a translator because it just seems it, it it's just one kind of it's one more element to add to the character to make him seem a little more powerful. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you know, just he kind it kind of came off like this. Like I think Coppola called him like a prince, you know, and speaking through like one of his like subjects, you know, that whole scene, which which is kind of an interesting way to look at it too. And uh, I also like the uh, I like Fabrizio when he's trying to talk to the GIs. You know, take me to America. You know, Clark Gable, Rita Hayworth. You know, <laughs> and speaking of Rita Hayworth, I actually just picked up Gilda on Criterion Blu-ray, so I got I'm gonna watch that soon. I can't wait to see that. Which oh Gilda oh on the Criterion yeah. Have you ever seen it before? No, this this was a blind buy, but I've heard very good things about it. So I'm I think I'll be satisfied with my purchase. It's after a I see it's it. a great film, and they actually reference it in the uh, not the Godfather in the Shawshank Redemption. You know what scene? They referenced it in. Well, I haven't seen Shawshank in a while, so you so got to remind you, me. Do you remember the scene when they're? It's just like a kind of a throwaway scene where they're all like in the prison and they're all watching a movie, and then all of a sudden you see like a like a woman kind of toss her hair back, and then all the guys in the, watching the movie go, "Yeah, uh, that's Gilda, <laughs> yeah, that's Gilda," and, right. and that was that's starting Rita Hayworth, and the the movie. Is based on the book called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption because you know the, the That's poster. That's right. Yes, the I poster, did hear about that. The poster he has in the in his cell keeps changing. Rita Hayworth and one of keeps changing. And the first one I think is Rita Hayworth. I think it ends with, is it Jane Fonda from Barbarella? Is that the last one? I don't remember now. I have, now that's another one I have to revisit. Barbarella is a weird movie. Oh my Which god, I've never seen, but I've always been curious about. 
We we might have to review it on the show. I don't know if it's essential. Oh, no, okay, okay. If you're gonna put that in the machine, you gotta put Simpsons movie. But it's there. weird. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> it's a weird ass movie. Uh, but uh, it, it's it, it's it's definitely worth watching. But I don't know if I'd watch it more than once because <laughs> it's. <laughs> although if 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 you're into this sort of thing, you do get to see Jane Fonda naked, which is just there you go. not too not too shabby. Um, but speaking of naked, <laughs> Apollonia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the actress who played Apollonia, uh, Simonetta Stefani- Stefani- Stefanelli. Damn. <laughs> Simonetta Stefanelli, um, I think is probably, and I don't think I've ever seen her in anything other than uh, The Godfather. I know she was an actress in Italy, in Italy, but I don't know if she ever did anything else. Um, I mean, actually, I could probably look up her screen credits here. Uh, actually, she did do a couple things. Um, looks like it's all Italian stuff that yeah, I've never seen like, before. Yeah, okay. But boy, did I have a crush on her. <laughs> Even though by the time uh, I saw the movie, she was 20 years older, and I, I don't know what she looked like at that age, but, but in this movie, she's gorgeous. Well, yeah, understandably so. Same here. I agree. Uh, and it's such a great it's such a great name. I love that name, Apollonia. It's Apollonia. actually one. It's actually one of the names that I, I threw out as a suggestion to my wife to name our daughter. She did not go for it, though. Oh, uh, I... Really? Apollonia uh, Acosta. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Double yeah. A. Maybe if we have another daughter. <laughs> I don't I don't think so because I got to name the, the first child, so I don't think I'm gonna get that, that oh, right the oh, second side. Yeah. <laughs> might might be a while for you. <laughs> yeah, probably if ever. It probably it probably won't work. It's just she's like, You got your name. You're, now we're gonna go with my name. <laughs> so I don't think that's gonna happen. Um but the Sicily sequence, I, I just I love that sequence. Um it just makes me want to visit it, it, it just makes me want to visit Sicily. Uh, and it just, um, it's just beautifully shot and just, I mean, the whole, I can't, I just feel like every scene we talk about, I'm just going to gush Forty about. Willis, bro. We got to give him, uh, got to give him praise for that. Cause and, and I think his favorite shot was like the, uh, the, when the wedding procession, like that, that long, that wide shot of them, like going through like the, the village. Yeah. That, I think Gordon Willis said that was his favorite shot. <laughs> and it's funny. And it's funny because, uh, yeah, that's his favorite shot, but also because, uh, in the commentary, if you listen to the, uh, the Coppola commentary, uh, he says like, "Oh yeah, um, yeah, my my parents were in this were in the wedding reception, <laughs> yes. but but his parents were also at the wedding in the beginning in of the, the movie, yeah. and his parents were also at the baptism at the end. So his parents are just those characters are just everywhere." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he, the guy needed extras, and I mean, your family will work for free for you, so you know, exactly. I mean, why not? Um, but I mean, we could go through every every scene in the movie. We never, we haven't even talked about Fredo. Uh, but Fredo has a better role in, in really in part two than in one. Yeah, he's um, more fleshed out there. But it, but here you kind of has have the seeds planted for what's going to happen in part two. You know, yeah, and, which is and, what I like. And I always feel I always feel bad for Fredo. I I always feel bad for Fredo every time. But um, it, but what we could probably dig deeper into Fredo when we eventually talk about part two. So I, I don't want to go scene for scene for scene because we we've. we've we could go. We could do that all night with this movie. Yeah, but I, I really. want to get to the very end of, of the of the scene, which is probably my favorite sequence in the whole movie, and it's such a film nerd sequence to love, and that's the baptism. Well, now let me ask, let me tell you this. Do you know? Uh, let me see. Uh, how do I phrase this question? Um, do you know what Star Wars film did an homage to the scene? Was it one of the prequels? Yes. Was it the uh, was it episode three? Yes. Yeah, I figured. The, I know uh, what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah the, when Anakin assassinates the uh, the separatists while Palpatine is like 
speaking, you know, declaring the empire. So it's that juxtaposed with the uh, with Anakin killing the separatists. So it's supposed to be an homage. Lucas said to the baptism scene. You know, I respect that he's paying homage to his friend Coppola. I respect that. I do. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> uh, I think someone did it better than the other. I'm just uh. going to say that right there. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't actually, I, I did know that, but I, I never, I, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. And as soon as you said, I'm like, uh, is it the thing with episode three and the younglings? Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Well, not the younglings. It was the, or the, the, sep- the separatist. The separatist. Yeah. yeah. So the separatist. Sorry. Um, that movie. <laughs> We're definitely not putting that up for discussion ever. Because no. <laughs> Those Star Wars movies. We can do the first three, but not the other three. Uh, anyway. But the baptism scene. Michael Francis Ritzy. Do you renounce Satan? I do renounce him. And all his works. Um, I, I, I will watch this scene just cold, like, without even watching the rest of the movie. Because this, this whole sequence of him, uh, basically doing this very holy ceremony and baptizing this baby in the Catholic faith. But at the same time, I don't know how to say this without being cheesy, but baptizing himself in the, the underworld of the mafia while he goes, while he kills all the other heads of the five families. I love the fact that, like, the entire, you know, the, you have this entire history of, you know, gangs do this, this one way and then nobody's ever, and then he just goes, no, I'm just going to kill everybody and I'm just going to be on top. Right. I just, right. I love that. I do like how he explained that the, uh, that whole, the genesis of just how that scene was laid, laid out and shot was, uh, was not in the book. But it was basically like a practicality. It, it, it was created by practicality. He said like it was an innovation that wasn't in the book, you know, because he wanted to like kind of show what was happening, you know, with you know with these assassinations while juxtaposing it with Michael's and uh, his godson's quote unquote baptism. Because he had like a dual baptism here. One was the one on the surface, which was you know his godson, and the other one was like the more subtle one that you just described. But uh, oh, also, who was the baby? Oh, it was uh, the greatest actress of our time, Sofia Coppola. <laughs> As we saw her, her criminally we, we said under, sarcastically criminally underappreciated should have been recognized by the Academy performance in Godfather Three. Sofia Coppola. We said sarcastically. Yeah. That's, no, because well, no, because people think we're serious. That that that's lost. The viewers are gone. I know, right? Point, so, but hey, let's be fair. Let's be fair. The baptism scene is her best performance. 
Yes. I really <laughs> bought I really bought that baby, you know, crying during that baptism. I bought totally that baby bought that. being a male. Yeah. You know, so, totally yeah. bought it. <laughs> Good job. Oh man. It's just so bad in that movie. <laughs> it's she's so terrible. Like I it's it's I, I will defend that movie on certain points. That's just, that part's just un, indefensible. Well, at least she found her calling with directing. So, <laughs> she has. She's a very successful director, and good for her. And and she clearly has realized that she's not meant for acting. And that's not really her fault, to be honest, because they were so that was supposed to be um, Winona Ryder originally. But right. I, I don't remember what happened that she couldn't do it. She may have had another commitment or. I, don't, I I heard that. I don't remember what it is either. But if we ever do Godfather three, we can. Yeah, I, we can, I think I wonder because I thought it was yeah. another commitment. And the other movie that came out in nineteen ninety that she was in was Edward Scissorhands. So I wonder if she was too busy on Edward Scissorhands, she can do Godfather three. Possibly. But um, I mean, it's a possibility. But she, boy, she would have made that movie better. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, we're not talking about Godfather three. Uh, yeah, that baptism sequence, I I cannot. And when he's like, "Do you renounce Satan?" and then you just cut to all the different shots of the, of, yeah. of his capos just killing people, and then he goes, "I do renounce him," and just so cold, yep. and, like yeah. Pacino. That is that is a performance right there. That when our, he's like, our, our boy Mo him. Green got the got it right in the eye. The Mo Green special right through the eye. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I I love that. Well, Coppola talked about like how they got how they pulled off that scene it was so funny because it was something they had to invent bro like they like the glasses were like fitted with like these ball bearings like one side had like a little packet of blood the other side had like this ball bearing that had a little like puff of air that would like shoot out and once it shot out like it would like uh cut the cut the glass and then let the blood out which was kind of cool it like looked- that, that, that that was a whole thing that was invented by them it, it looked pretty cool even though not quite realistic it looked really cool yeah. Uh, oh, actually, before we get to this, can we talk about the one absolute glaring flaw in this movie? Do you know what it What's is? That? What's that? The absolute – every time I watch the movie, every time I watch the movie, I notice it, and it just cracks me up because the the movie is so pristinely perfect. It's so – that this one mistake is so obvious. And it's, and it's when Sonny goes to beat the crap out of Carlo – and there's just one punch that just completely misses. It's just there's like a foot of air in between them. Watch. There's a, well, there's a couple of those little like little like little gaffes throughout the film. Like like it's more dubbing. Like there's like there's a scene where like uh, Don Corleone is talking, and you could tell like if you really look closely, his lips don't match the dialogue. Same thing later on with uh, when Michael reunites with Kay, and they're walking. They talk about how you know I'm, I take over the family business. I want to make it legitimate. And then when Kay starts talking, and like there's a little wide shot of 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 them of them two walking. And then when you see like Kay, when you really look at her mouth, her mouth is her lips don't match the dialogue. So like they have to do some overdubbing there, obviously. But like you, if you really look, you can catch a lot of those. Yeah, but but that that one punch though, it just it's just, it's just so uh, it's so obvious, so obvious. And every time I see it, I'm just like, oh, oh. And the other thing is, because um, that that sets up early on that Carl's an abusive, you know, uh, an abusive husband, and then you know also sets up the fact that he that he betrays the Corleones. But my one another one of my favorites is right before the causeway, whenever Sonny comes over and he sees Connie's beat up face and he does that thing where he bites his hand. Yes. That's such a, I don't, I don't know why, but it's such a great touch. It's such a fantastic, like, uh, like Sonny's like, I cannot contain my rage right now. And I have to bite my hand. <laughs> like who does that? 
Well, when they interviewed uh, what's her name? Now I forgot her name. The uh, the director of uh, Boys Don't Cry. I forgot what her name is. Oh, but, uh, um, let me look. But what well, she talked about how like you know she would see like her, you know her her male Italian relatives do that exact same like hand bite whenever they were mad. So you know that you know Kimberly Pierce. Like, there you go, Kimberly Pierce. Like she so she said that you know she would see, like her her relatives you know do that you know that hand bite as well when they were pissed off. So that kind of brought like a whole like authenticity like you just mentioned to the to the film as well. Yeah, I I just I love that scene. It just every time I see it, I just I I, I and that cracks me up. But it, it it just I just love that 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 certain I guess authenticity is the word that certain authenticity brings to that scene. And of course, two seconds later, you know he he gets killed on the causeway. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it's just. Uh, but I also just love that it's just such a perfect representation of his character because you know each one of them like you know temper. They Fre- all have their flaws, man. Fredo's the screw up. You know. Uh, Tom is is highly intelligent, but he's not a Sicilian. And then there's Sonny, who just he's got the passion, but he just has no temper, and it just it bites him in the ass. Uh, and it's a, and Michael is clearly is clearly the one most suited to to run the family business, even though he starts out as not wanting to be in the business. And this is the last topic I want to discuss before we go into it, because I love the character of Michael Corleone and. And we can get more into this when we eventually talk about part two. But I want to ask your opinion. Taking both movies into account, and even the third one if you want. Taking both movies into account, Michael Corleone is the protagonist of the film. But you think Michael is a hero, an anti-hero, or a villain? Well, in my opinion, actually, like... like his actions would fit more of the villain, but because the story is about him, it's about the Corleones, and like he has his own like antagonist. You know, in this case, you know, it, it ultimately ends up being like Barzini is like the the main antagonist of the film. So, on that note, you know, you're kind of rooting for Michael and his family because they're kind of romanticized and they're kind of already portrayed as the people to get behind, despite you know what they stand for. So in that sense, I would probably say it for, for at least Godfather one, he's an anti-hero. But in part two, when you really see like you know what he does, like what he does to his brother, man, like that kind of like that kind of puts it over the top for me as like like he's like the the main character that we're, we're following, but he's the villain in all this too. But it but you have to take part two into account when you make that decision. Like in part one, he's more of an anti-hero, I think. Yeah, so I agree with you. And and the reason I, I I brought it up is because what I think this film, both films together as like a saga, do so amazingly is that Michael goes the entire spectrum. He he starts the series, the saga, as a hero. He's a he's a, literally a war hero, and he does not want to be part of the fame business. He does not want any part of it. But then he gets sucked into it. So so because you know his his brother has has the temper and like like we talked about earlier cost him in the end. Fredo's too weak to take over, and like like who else is there? There's nobody to take over the the family. And at this point, like if he hadn't stepped in, like the Corleone family could have it could have just not existed. It could have collapsed on itself. So he was the only one that could do it. And of course, this is a patriarchy. There's no there's no thought of Connie taking over, even though I think by three. And this, yeah. is, this is why I like three. This is why I think I like three a little bit more than most people. Is Connie is a lot more than meets the eye. But before, but we won't get in that, into that now. Um, but see, that's that. You, and you're absolutely right. He he is the only one that can do it. And the thing is, is that he does it 
for what he thinks are noble reasons, which kind of, which are kind of heroic reasons at first, right? He, there's nobody else, just like you said, nobody else can do this. Only he can do this. He's the only competent one. And then when he does do it, then he gets start to get deeper and deeper and deeper, yeah. so that he's an anti-hero throughout the rest of the film. Remember what he told Kay? He's like, in five years, the Corleone family's going to be completely legitimate. But then we see that that's not necessarily the case, right? And obviously, you ha- you end that film with that amazing final shot, one of the greatest final shots ever in history, like period of, and it, it might even be the greatest final shot in history, where you see the door closing on Kay, right? But by part two, he absolutely is a hundred percent a villain. Yep, uh, absolutely a hundred percent. He has completely lied to his wife by that point because he's they're, they're they're no longer like he they're not legitimate after way past the point he said they were supposed to. He's bribing political officials. He's having people killed. You know everything. And then what makes him truly lose his soul is is what he does to Fredo. And when he has Fredo killed, that complete and. It almost, like, as much as I do defend Part 3, I do kind of wish they never would have gone to Part 3 because the whole series would have ended with that final shot of Michael having just having his brother killed and him just, like, looking off in the distance without a soul. Like, that is when he truly loses his soul is when he has his brother killed. Yes. So that, to me, by Part 2, full-on villain. Part 1, he rides the fence between hero and anti-hero. Uh, right. But, it, it, but what I love about that... That um, the saga is that Michael goes the full spectrum. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Like I, I didn't really think about it like that until you mentioned it, but you, you're absolutely right on that. And then part three, if you want to take into account, is that he's trying to redeem himself. Yes, but it's too late, and the and he gets what he deserves in the end. The, the damage is done. Like when he took that first shot against Salazzo, that's that was a turning point and everything that happened after that was as a result of that first action he took. Yeah. But yeah, um I think we can both very highly recommend The Godfather. Oh, more than highly. <laughs> uh one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, uh greatest gangster film of all time. I know we will we will also say uh Scarface as well. Also starring your boy Al Pacino. Yep. Which it's funny because it's if you ever watch Al Pacino's career, you know, Godfather years, he had that kind of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, almost like a nasally kind of voice. And then the 80s hit, and he had that growl that he has, yes. right? <laughs> like, what happened? What happened between, like, Dog Day Afternoon and Scarface? Probably like that, the, the <laughs> he, uh, he was probably a smoker. That had to be it. Maybe that's what it is. But, like, what happened between those? You know, that all of a sudden he, he had that, that growl that he has now. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of a character of, caricature of himself ever since he did a, a Scent of a Woman. Because, like, I've, other than maybe Heat, I can't think of a great Al Pacino performance since Heat. What about Serpico? No, but Heat, like, was oh. in the 90s. Serpico was a great Oh, 90s. Oh, 90s. Yeah. Okay, like, gotcha. no, he did great work in the 70s. He did great work as Scarface. Um, and then... Scent of a Woman is a is a pretty decent movie, but it's just it's like I, he's just too silly. I think <laughs> just doing that, wah, you know. Um, the Heat, I think, oh, is Carlito's a, Way. I think Heat was after Carlito's Way, though. Oh, was oh, <laughs> I think because Heat was the last time I remember him being great. Because after Heat, then he did Devil's Advocate, where he was way oh, over the top. That, I gotta throw that one in in the in the thing. Oh my that, god, he's so over the top in that movie. <laughs> Um, and then I can't think of, I mean, and then he's done pretty much a bunch of crap after that. 
Yeah. What about that uh, Righteous Kill, which is supposed to be two legends together, and that was just a complete mess. Never watched it. I I didn't (laughs) hear anything good about that movie, so I never watched it. Did you see uh, it? It's pretty depressing to watch, actually. (laughs) Is it really bad? Yeah, it's uh. So if I, I want, I'm not gonna get into it now, but so if I want to watch D- D- Pacino and De Niro on screen, I should just watch Heat. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Which is a great I mean, movie. We may, I may just just for fun bring it up on Force Perspective one day, but not not for this show. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. So after all that, uh, where can you watch The Godfather? Well, it's not streaming anywhere for free. But you can uh, – it is available for digital rental and purchase on iTunes, Google, Vudu, and uh, Sony. Um, it's also obviously available on DVD and Blu-ray. I think we both highly recommend the Coppola Restoration Blu-ray. Most absolutely. Um, the, so it, it, the Coppola Restoration Blu-ray obviously has restored the film in very high def. Very looks, it, it looks incredible. Uh, it, has a, it has a couple of documentaries, and it also includes the bonus materials from the – 20th anniversary set dvd set as well which i also have yeah that was that 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 set as actually a birthday gift for uh my uh my 20th birthday my mom got for me the trilogy in the that old dvd set so yeah so you can pretty much i mean it's one of the most famous movies of all time you can watch it anywhere um digitally you can purchase it anywhere and you can obviously buy a dvd blu-ray it's unfortunately just not available on uh for free streaming on netflix or amazon prime or anything like that but you can buy it um so now what do we do next week? Well, we're going to introduce a brand new uh, piece of technology here. And that piece of technology is what we're calling the Random Movie Generator, trademark 2016, Essential Films Podcast. Yeah, the Random Movie Generator. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, put in, uh, activate this thing here. And we'll see what it gives us as our next movie. All right, I'm excited. Let's go. All right, let's see here. Do-do-do-do-do. And it has given us. All right, next one. This is an excellent. This is an excellent pick. Right. Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Yes, yes, that's a great that, film, bro. This is a fantastic pick. So that Jimmy will be Stewart our next episode. The Alpha. Yeah. Oh, I love Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. So Vertigo is what we're gonna do next. Um, which I'm very excited about because Vertigo is is a phenomenal movie. It is actually. Uh, it was named by uh, the most recent Sight and Sound poll as the as the best movie of all time. It beats Citizen Kane, actually. Um, and we'll we'll do that on the next episode. Um, I don't know when we'll get around to recording it. But it's been like two weeks since the last one. So maybe we'll probably do this every two or three weeks. We'll, this, a new episode will come out, more or less. Sounds good. Uh, but uh, Vertical will be our next film. So please go out, rent it, or buy it, or whatever you want to do, but it's it's an awesome film. It does star Jimmy Stewart, who is legitimately one of my favorite actors. Yeah, I, mine too. Mine too. That guy, that guy's awesome. That guy's an alpha. And, and, and uh, yeah, I read I read his bio, I, I bought a book, like, I was at a garage sale once, and they were selling like his biography for like a dollar, and it was like this, huh. it was like this 400 page, like hardcover book. I was like, for a dollar? Sure. And I, I read it in like a week. It was fascinating. The dude, I mean, he's a war hero, He's, I mean, and and not just like you know back in the day when like all all the movie stars went to the, went to war, right? But a lot of them had like a, kind of a cake job. They were just like you know hey, entertain the troops and things like that. Jimmy Stewart was in it, man. He was he was in planes. He was bombing things. He was a he's <laughs> yeah. a legitimate war hero. So uh, I, I I I love Jimmy Stewart. And Vertigo is if it's not it's a wonderful life. Vertigo is probably his best film. So. 
Oh, I, I'm gonna, I'm inclined to. Although Anatomy of a Murder is really good too. Oh, that is I, a good movie too. But yeah. I think Vertigo is kind of a masterpiece. Oh, oh, of course. So Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Uh, that'll be the next episode. So before we go, you can uh, find uh, the Essential Films at, at EssentialFilmsPodcast.com. Um, and uh, we have some couple recent articles there. I have the uh, the Essential Film Awards, which is basically what the Oscars got wrong. Uh, we got right. And uh, we do our own kind of awards ceremony there. Um, so make sure to check that out. Make sure to like the Essential Films on Facebook and follow at Essential Films on Twitter. And please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the Essential Films podcast on iTunes if you haven't already done so. Mark and myself also do the Force Perspective podcast, which is uh, a little bit more of adult content. We, we get, we, we, you know, we do, we're a little more R-rated on that show. We, we review uh, more current films. We sometimes do retrospectives. We're kind of wrapping up our Back to the Future retrospective. We have our Oscar, our Oscar Mania show just went up where we talk about uh, everything that happened at the Oscars. Uh, so make sure to like, rate, review, and subscribe to that on iTunes. And uh, Mark, before we go, where can we find you and what do you want to plug? All right. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at SportsGuy515. That's the name I use on Force Perspective. So you can find me there. Follow me. And um, that's uh, pretty much it. But I do know that I'm – well, I'm actually hoping – well, not necessarily hoping, but I know we will. Now, since this episode of Essential Films will, is going up in place of a forced perspective this week, so we are getting some new listeners because of that. So for all those who are joining us for the first time, welcome. Thank you for the support. We hope you join us next time. And uh, next week for Force Perspective, we will be concluding our Back to the Future trilogy episodes. We we're going to do finally Back to the Future Part 3. We've had to push it back a few weeks now, a few months, I should say now. But finally, uh, we're getting around to it, and that'll be dropping next week. So be on the lookout for that. And also, you know, we, we've been doing Force Perspective a lot longer than we do in this show. We've got a catalog of how many? 70 episodes? Well, well, next week will be 74. Next week will be 74. So there's 74 episodes. You can go and backlog and start listening to them now. Uh, please forgive us for the first couple. We were just starting doing this podcast yeah. thing. But, uh, you know, you can go back. You know, I think we started in 2011. Was, uh, 2011. So yep. the summer of 2011 uh, going forward, you can listen to reviews of uh, pretty much all the major films from that summer to now. Uh, most recently, I think the most recent movie we did was Deadpool. Um, and But the... That was the most recent full review, and actually, you and uh, and and your and special guest Danny uh, did that one. But um, uh, I gave my two cents on it on the Oscar Mania show. But the most recent episode is the Oscar Mania show, so we got plenty of stuff there, plenty of uh, content on that as well. So please make sure you listen to that as well. Definitely, and and be on the lookout. We're gonna have a YouTube channel, Facebook page real soon, and then you can start uh, following us there as well. All right. So for uh, for Mark, I'm Adolfo. We, we hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, we'll see you next time when we watch Vertigo. Until then, leave the gun, take the cannoli.